All right, guys, my name is Drew. For those of you who don't know me, and we're continuing this series through Matthew. And we're finding ourselves in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. And we're talking about a pretty familiar topic in Christianity, which is the hope of Jesus coming again. So we believe that Jesus came once to deal with sin and that he'll come again in order to judge the world and bring his people to be at home with him forever. But normally, when we talk about hope, we're talking about the joy of our hope. And this passage is a little bit different because Jesus is reminding us of our hope, but he's reminding us so that we will not grow complacent. And this conversation comes about because of a warning that Jesus gives his disciples, actually about the destruction of the temple. So let me bring you in on this conversation here a little bit. We're in Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to start out just by reading verses 1 through 3. So in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign be of your coming and of the close of the age? And so this reality to the disciples was so disturbing that Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed, that they think if the temple is destroyed, that means that Jesus is going to come back again. It was such a cataclysmic event because the temple for them was the center of political and religious life. And so to a Jew, the destruction of the temple would have to mean the end of all things. And Jesus splits their question up into two answers to show them that their hope is not in the temple standing or even in them having a good life when they're on the earth, but their hope truly is in the second coming of Jesus. And so he doesn't answer the when question, when am I going to come back? But he answers for them the how question, how to live faithfully during your life. And so here's sort of the big idea that's going to pull together what we're talking about this morning. Jesus' answer in summary to this question is that he could come back at any moment. And so basically what we're going to look at is two truths related to this reality and one big application. All right, so the first big truth is that current events do not tell us when Jesus is coming back. Okay, people are often tying current events to Jesus' second coming, and they're saying, because this crazy cataclysmic thing is happening in life right now, that means Jesus is coming back. And this whole passage sort of serves as a warning not to think that way. 
So I'm going to skip ahead to a confusing passage, and we're going to talk about that for a bit, okay? Matthew 24, verses 15 through 27. And in this section, Jesus is answering the first half of the disciples' question, which is, tell us when these things are going to be, and that these things they're referring to are the destruction of the temple. And this is Jesus' answer. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of of man. Okay, so Jesus is warning the disciples to not associate the destruction of the temple with his second coming. And he's telling them that they are going to live through this cataclysmic, unthinkable event. And he's telling them how they can do that. And he refers to a passage that is unfamiliar to us, but would have been familiar to them when he mentions this term, the abomination of desolation. And so most of us, when I read that, it's like the abomination of desolation. And there's this parenthesis that says, let the reader understand. We're like, I don't understand. (laughs) Am I a Christian? You know, we're like, what is going on here? But for them... It would have triggered this passage in Daniel. It would have triggered the book of Daniel as a whole, but specifically this passage in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. So here's what you have to understand about prophecy in the Old Testament is usually when there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, there is a near fulfillment of the prophecy. In other words, something that will happen in the hearer's immediate lifetime, but there's also a far fulfillment of the prophecy. And so what the people in Daniel's day would have seen happen is there was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who ruled Palestine from 175 to 164 BC. And he came in to the temple in Jerusalem and he set up a pig sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, in the holiest place in the temple, 
to Zeus. And so this would have been an abomination because it was idolatry. It was sacrifice to a foreign god in the holy place. And it would have brought desolation because it would have been desecrating to that holy place. And so that happened way back in the day in the book of Daniel, and the disciples would have been aware of that abomination of desolation. So they would have immediately connected abomination of desolation to the destruction of the temple. They would have known that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus is saying, when something like this happens, I'm giving you the playbook. And the playbook is not think, sweet, Jesus is going to come back immediately and we're out of here. But Jesus says, instead of thinking Jesus is coming back, think, I need to live a certain way in order to endure this. And here's basically Jesus' instruction to them. The first one is, run. Get out as fast as you can. Whatever you're doing, when you see an army invade Jerusalem to take over the temple, run. Get out. Secondly, he says, don't believe false teachers. He's saying during this time, there's going to be people who are saying, the Messiah's come back. Jesus has come back. He's hiding in this certain place. He's around this corner. He says, don't believe any of that stuff because when I come back, when the Son of Man comes back, he's referring to himself, it's going to be like lightning in the sky that everyone sees. In other words, it's going to be this universal event that is seen by the world all at once. It's not going to be done in some hidden corner like Jesus' first coming was in a stable in Bethlehem. Everybody's going to know. And so Jesus' call is for them to endure. He's warning them that life is going to be hard and that in a sense life is something to be endured and no one knows when Jesus is going to come back. So here's what happened. Okay, as a result of this prophecy, in AD 70, the Romans marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. There was this abomination of desolation. And here's what the first church historian, a guy named Eusebius, said happened to the Christians. It says, the church at Jerusalem left the city and moved to a town called Pella. And so here's what happened as a result of Jesus' warning. The church was saved from the abomination of desolation. They were able to escape from Jerusalem. So here's what we learn about Jesus from this passage. Jesus is our loving God who warns us of things that could destroy us in advance so that we would find a way of escape. And so this promise related to the temple sets a pattern for our lives as Christians 
And what Jesus is doing through this passage is he's pulling us close and he's saying, when things get hard, don't just think Jesus is going to come rescue me out of this. He's going to come tomorrow immediately and get me out of this. But we've got to hear him say, you've got to endure. Okay, let me give an example that all of us can relate to. I don't know if any of you all ever went to camp back in the day, but that's like a very troubling thing as like an early elementary school kid to leave home for the first time, go and spend the night at camp. And I remember my parents, maybe your parents didn't do this, but my parents sat us down before camp and said, it doesn't matter if you call us, it doesn't matter how much you cry, you are staying for the whole camp. You're staying for the whole camp. And one year, sure enough, my younger sister, Anna, wanted to go home from camp. And Anna was crying, and I was at camp with her, so I'd see her in the cafeteria crying. I'd see her out on the sports field, she'd be crying. I'd see her in the worship service, she'd be crying. And I'm like, Anna, doesn't matter how much you cry. Mom and dad are not coming to get you. She's like, yes, they will. And so she's trying to call my parents, and they're like, we're not coming to get you. We told you that. But why are they telling her that? They're setting her expectation. They're saying, no matter how bad camp gets, We're not coming back to get you out of it. You've got to endure it. And here's what Jesus is saying to us. I'm not coming back when things get bad. Like this time that we're living in right now is not an indication that Jesus is coming back right now. It's an indication that we've got to put on our big boy and big girl pants as Christians and we've got to endure Jesus is calling us to endurance. He's calling us away from complacency. There's some of us who have never really read our Bibles. There's some of us who have never really attended church regularly. There's some of us who have never been vitally involved in a small group. There's some of us who have honestly just coasted through our Christian life. And Jesus is telling us, if you want to make it to the end you got to buckle up and you got to start doing what I say. He's saying, in light of the hope that you have, don't be complacent. Okay, if we're not supposed to read the signs of our age and conclude when things get hard that Jesus must therefore be coming back, how are we supposed to think about his second coming? I'm glad you asked. Here's what Jesus says, super mysterious passage, but here's what he says, only the Father knows when Jesus is coming back. Look at verses 36 through 39 of Matthew 24, it says, but concerning that day and hour, now he's talking about his second coming. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only knows. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
So Jesus makes this amazing statement. He says, only the Father knows when I'm coming back. And then he says, the angels don't know. And then he says something even more remarkable. I don't even know. Guys, the epitome of arrogance is a human being thinking they know when Jesus is coming back. This is a mistake people have made for millennia in Christianity, where they guess when Jesus is coming back. And in so doing, what they do is they make themselves superior to Jesus. If Jesus couldn't figure it out, you think you're going to? Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, so he doesn't tell us when he's coming back. But he describes the time of his second coming. And he actually reverses our thinking as he describes the timing of his second coming. Here's what he said. When things get really bad, it's the time to endure. When things get really good and they seem normal, that's the time I'll come back. He says, this is what it's going to be like when I come back. It's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to be eating and drinking and getting married. Life is going to be good. It's going to be normal. And so right now, in this time that we live in, where we're all wearing masks and life is crazy, we're not supposed to think, oh, Jesus is probably coming back soon. Things are getting so crazy. What we're supposed to think is, no, probably not. Because when he comes back, he told us things are going to be real normal. Because here's what happens. We can get distracted with this idea of getting this escape hatch out of life. And we can just sit in our rooms all the time just praying like, Jesus, please come back. And he's like, I'm not coming back. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to endure. I want you to live faithfully. I don't know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows when I'm coming back. And you certainly aren't going to figure out when I'm coming back. And so here's what that leaves us with. It leaves us with this feeling that Jesus could come back at any moment. If we don't know, it sort of leaves this dot, dot, dot on our life and makes us think Jesus could come back at any moment, which is incredibly important when things go back to normal because we'll forget about him. You know, when I often think about this passage, it's when I'm in a big crowd of people and things feel completely normal. Like when I'm at a Vikings game and it's like, you know, there's 70,000 people there and everybody's screaming and everybody's so into this game. And I wonder this, I wonder if there's going to be a Vikings game going on when Jesus comes back. Or I wonder if I'll be at a wedding when Jesus comes back. Or I wonder if I'll, I'll just be having some people over to dinner and we'll just be laughing and having fun together and Jesus will come back. Or maybe I'll be on vacation 
when Jesus comes back. Jesus said that's when you can expect the unexpected, is when life is normal and everything seems good and there's prosperity and you would never guess that I would come back. That's when you should expect me to come back. And so Jesus could come at any moment, which makes us ask the question, does my life align with that reality? See, Jesus will not be saying in Matthew 25 what we expect him to say, which is, this is great news. We have this hope. This is amazing. We should be joyful as Christians because our inheritance in heaven is guaranteed, which the Bible does say in other passages, but that's not what this passage says. This is what Jesus does for us. He calls us to examine our lives and to ask ourselves the question, does my life line up with this reality? Does my life say what my mouth has said that I believe about the second coming of Jesus? And here's how I would summarize Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25, is that we are called to live as if Jesus could come back at any moment. Okay, here's his summary of it. At the end of Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, he says, in light of the reality that I could come back at any moment, that you're not going to be able to read the signs, that it's going to be like lightning in the sky, that I'm going to come like a thief in the night, he said, therefore, stay awake. Why? Because you don't know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So here's what we're to do with this reality that we don't know at what moment Jesus is coming back. And with this dot, dot, dot over our life that he could come back at any moment, we're to stay awake like the master of a house who knows that his house could be broken into at any moment and that the thief could come in and steal any of his stuff. That master is going to stay awake so that his house is not broken into, so that he could defend his house. And so we're supposed to live with this urgency and with this alertness to the reality of God in our lives, and that at the end of our life, we will give an account for every careless word we speak. We're supposed to be sober-minded. We're supposed to fix our minds, not on this life, but on the next life. And we're supposed to live in light of eternity. And so here's what Jesus does in the passage. He gives us three contrasts to show how we should and should not live. 
The first example is this example of these virgins who are at a wedding and they're supposed to bring oil for their lamps and five of them bring oil for their lamps and five of them don't. And Jesus' exhortation to us is we need to be ready because he's like a bridegroom who's coming back and we need to be ready like the virgins who had the oil for their lamps, not like the ones who didn't. Then the second story he tells is the story of the parable of the talents. You guys might remember that one where a talent was like a weight of gold. And he's saying basically this master gives three different workers different amounts of gold and he tells them to go invest that gold well. And two of them invest the gold well and one of them buries it in the ground, doesn't do anything with it. And Jesus called to us is to be good stewards of what he's given us, both of our gifts and of our money. Because if he's coming back, we should be ready for him and we should also be investing our lives. We should be spending our lives. We should be giving our lives away. And the third one is the one I want to dive into because I think it's the one that's going to hit us the hardest. And it's that we should be generous toward the poor, the needy, those who are left out. Because Jesus has rescued us. Although we were poor spiritually, we've been made rich through his generosity. And because of that, there should be this marked change in our lives, this marked different attitude toward the poor around us. And so here's what Jesus said. This is a famous passage. It's actually not hard to understand, but it's difficult for us to hear. Here's what Jesus said the awake life looks like, the life that is aware of his second coming looks like. Matthew 25, verses 33 through 46. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you see you as a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the, dev the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. 
I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So here's our temptation right now as mostly white, rich, evangelical Christians. We Jesus juke the passage. We say, but I'm not saved by works. And so God sent his son to die on the cross for me. And if I just believe that, mentally assent to it, then that means I'm saved. But that's not what this passage says. This passage says that at the final judgment, one of the questions that Jesus is going to ask you is what did you do for the least of these? Not what did your church leaders do, not did what those in your not did what did those in your community do, not how active socially was your family. He's asking the question to you. What did you do? For the least of these. Did you feed them? Did you clothe them? Did you visit them? Did you care about them? And the passage is very clear. It's too clear. It's uncomfortably clear. And the reason that Jesus is telling us this is because he doesn't want us to be complacent And he wants to examine ourselves to see if we're truly converted to him. Because American Christianity is, generally speaking, not real Christianity. And he's calling us away from that. And he's calling us to this. And the question for each of us is, has my heart been so transformed by this good news of the grace of God that I am now living my life to extend the blessing that's been given to me to those around me in a very practical way. And Jesus is saying there should not be assurance of salvation in your life, if this is not true of you. We cannot Jesus juke this passage. We have to examine ourselves to see whether we're really Christians. And it's uncomfortable. And you think you're feeling uncomfortable right now. Imagine having to study this thing all week. All right, but we can't get around it. 
And I think that one of the things that God is doing in this cultural moment with all the political stuff going on and all the stuff that's going on in the church and all these different voices that are going back and forth is he is calling us, the church, back to the basics of what Christianity looks like. And if our Christianity does not look like meeting the needs of the poor in this city, then how can we say that we're real Christians? And so I'm asking you to repent with me. Because I think all of us, when we're looking at this passage, we're just like, man, even if we've done something, we're like, man, does this mark my life? Am I living as if Jesus could come back at any moment by treating the least of these around me as if they were Jesus? Isn't that the most remarkable thing about that passage? Jesus identifies not with upper middle class white people, but with poor people. And he is inviting us to do the same. That's radical. It's like, man, if we're actually going to do this, it's going to take God changing us. So let's bow and ask him for that. Jesus, too often we use the hope that we have in you to get around what you're actually calling us to do. Jesus, I feel sobered by this text. I see selfishness and pride and unwillingness to uh, love those around me in my own life. But it's hard to, to know where to start. And so I ask that you would allow us to see what you see. Would you allow us to see your image in those that we normally overlook and to see it as a great privilege to serve those who could never pay us back in the city. Would you continue to grow that in our guts at Salt City? God, would this become a part of our, not just vision, but just heartbeat? and actions as individual Christians. And then as more people are doing it individually as a body, God, would you not let us rest? Would you just bug us about this by uh, your spirit and change us and make us new? In Jesus' name, amen.